0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of First Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 through 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 through 14. If you guys do not have a Bible with you, if you look in front of the chair in front of you on the bottom, there are Bibles available. I encourage you to open to page 899 with me. <clears throat> Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's been a while since I was up here. I'm very thankful for Pastor Paul who spoke for the last two weeks. If you look at him, um, he did the ministry portion. He lost a few pounds because he was probably stressed that he had to preach two weeks in a row. But I think he did a wonderful job, and I praise God um, for him. I just want to say, after this service, uh, we have been announcing it. We're going to have a a short installation service for Joe Jang, who we are reinstalling as a deacon. It's not an ordination. He has been ordained three years ago. And this uh, reinstallation service is going to be about 30 minutes long. Uh, I invite you to come and join us for it. Uh, It's going to go right after the benediction, but if you do have to leave, then I would ask that you would leave quietly and exit the back doors after the benediction. But again, we're going to go right ahead with it, right after the benediction. And so I invite you to join us after this service, the installation service for Joe Jang. He's looking quite dapper in the back. There you go. Okay, Uh, before we start, let's start with a prayer. Let your gospel, Lord, come unto us, not in word only, but in power, and in much assurance, and that in the Holy Spirit, that we may be guided into all truth, and strengthened unto all obedience, and enduring of your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of the faith, and the labour of love, and the patience of hope, we may finally be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, this uh, Today's sermon might be one of the hardest sermons a preacher might preach. And because it's about why a preacher should get paid. <laughs> so great, you know. Uh, a pastor would think about this and we come up to this passage and then he naturally will think of uh, there are going to be first-timers, people who haven't come to church in a long time, too. And the sermon that they're going to hear when they sit here is why this guy who's talking should get paid. And if you even think about it, what are the smaller group questions are going to be like? Number one, why PU should get a raise or why PU should get more money? It's like, what, what kind of smaller group questions could we even get from this? And this is why I've seen in the past, growing up in church, it's wise for pastors to ask other pastors to preach the sermons for them. We have honorariums in our budget for a reason. But I want to say that this passage is not simply about me, okay? Uh, I'm included in this category, but as we'll go over today, it's more than just about me. And in a way, it's also not about me because it is my testimony that I have truly been shown the all-sufficient grace of God through CGS, through this church. I have received far more than I have ever deserved, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I've heard of churches who don't want a pastor to even have a hobby outside of church Uh, things. I actually don't really have hobbies, so it wasn't a big problem. And so uh, people here started to take me out to play golf, right? So I've never played golf in my life before, and I was able to go for the first time last summer. Like in my 40s, I'm going out to golf. And, you know, perhaps some churches maybe don't mind their pastors playing golf, but they definitely don't want their pastors to be any good, right? Because what if a pastor just plays golf all day, right? But the members of this church, and maybe because I was so horrible at it, because 90% of the time I went with them on the field, I was in shrubbery looking for my balls, right? Um, They decided to buy me lessons. And... I've had three so far. And I wanted to show you a quick clip as a thank you for giving me these lessons. I have three, just three lessons. I'm not that good. So that's me. I'm setting up. I learned how to grip, right? And that's, so after three lessons, I'm like half decent and sometimes it goes straight. So thank you for, (laughs) (laughs) so as you can see because of your generosity I can hit the ball straighter and perhaps if I get to go again when the weather gets warmer I'll spend less time in the trees and bushes this this is just of course a small example if I went over every single uh, instance of the generosity that I've been shown um, while I've been your pastor this list would be so too long for this sermon so it's not about me. I'm not asking to get paid more. But I need to get this out there, that if you are visiting or your first-time attendee, that you won't go back, and then someone goes, oh, you haven't been to church in a long time. How was it? And then you answer, uh, I, went to the, I went to church for the first time, and the preacher's asking me to give him money. So that's not the point of the passage, and I wanted to put that caveat out there. I've been preaching as a lead and senior pastor over this congregation for now over five years, and I've never preached on this topic. But this is preached because it is in the Bible. And we have learned that we ought to teach the whole counsel of God. And don't we have this testimony, as a church, Do we not have this testimony of the Holy Spirit leading us in the exact instruction that we need for the very seasons that we have faced in the past? And so in faith, we go over verse by verse, line by line, word by word, what the Scriptures say. The passage that was read is really a a part of a larger passage from verses 1 through 18. And so if you want the whole picture you know, we're going, to, we're going to connect it next week. This is part one. It's a to be continued, and then part two happens next week. So how it correlates to what Paul is getting at, we're going to complete that in next week's passage. It's not different, really, from the two weeks prior that we've heard as well. What is the subject? It's about freedom, right? It's about... The freedom of not using your freedom. And that we went over that in detail in the last two weeks with Pastor Paul. But right now, as we have gone from chapter eight to chapter nine, the Apostle Paul is giving us an illustration of this concept. Uh, remember that Paul is answering the questions in Corinthian, in Corinth, right? Rather, that the Christians were raising. And one of those questions that we saw was, can you eat meat that was offered up to an idol? Because in Corinth, the meat that wasn't burned up at the altar of an idol, they ended up in the marketplace. And Christians, they would be seen eating meat from these marketplaces. And if you're a mature Christian, you probably thought, what's the difference? Idols aren't real they're just things fashioned by human hands. There's only one God, and God isn't concerned about food. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 15, 11, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. That's what a mature Christian would have thought and thinks. But for a newborn or a baby Christian, this was excruciating to watch because They were delivered, they were literally taken from these detestable practices that they were used to doing. To them, it felt like maybe alcoholics turned sober going into a bar and then seeing other Christians drunk. Of course, these are not the same things. Getting drunk is a sin while eating food offered to idols is not. But that's not how these newborn Christians felt. So, some Christians were okay while others were discouraged. So how did Paul answer this question? You could have the freedom to do something, but the mature person wouldn't do it if it's going to wound or offend the weaker Christian. Even in Romans chapter 14, Paul would write, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Because it all boils down to this. In verse 15 of that chapter, Paul had previously said, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So just as these speakers here have limiters, so we don't destroy them when the volume increases, love is the limiter of our liberty. Because maybe eating meat offered to idols is nothing to you. It doesn't even like register on your concern scale. But maybe eating meat offered to idols brings you back back to every detestable thing that you did in the offering of the meats, including sexual immorality in the ceremonies and things like that. So if this food is offensive to the weak Christian, I don't want to eat that meat is what Paul is saying, especially while they're in that newborn and weaker state. Freedom isn't the license to do what you want. Freedom is not the license to do what you want. Freedom is the ability to do what is righteous in love. Paul asserts that neither he nor any other believer should assert their freedom to the detriment of others. Now this is the backdrop that we've seen from chapter 8 as we enter chapter 9. And chapter 9 then is an illustration of the instructions from chapter 8. You might think, What does paying the preacher have anything to do with eating food from idols? But this is the backdrop, and we're going to go into an illustration that he is going to use. And this illustration has many points, hinges, and all sorts of goodies that he's going to throw in. So what is this illustration? It stems from the right that he has to expect support from the church. But Paul didn't exercise those rights, and instead, he took time to build tents. He felt that for himself, it wasn't right because of the early stage the church was in. Perhaps in some cases, he thought maybe people would even turn away if Paul had asked them for support. So he's going to make this argument here in the first 14 verses. And we're going to finish with the other four next week. But he's going to make this argument in the first 14 verses to the Corinthians in the church on why he deserves support. And that's why this passage is this passage. In verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Paul begins with four questions, and the way the questions are phrased implicates an affirmative answer. Am I not free? It means yes, Paul was free. Am I not an apostle? Yes, Paul was an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, he did. And are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Yes we are, would have been the answer the Corinthians would have given. Am I not free? Don't I have the same freedoms, the liberty that you claim to have? Don't I also have those liberties? Aren't we in the same boat? Couldn't I also do whatever I want? But the next question, am I not an apostle? Paul is saying that if anything, Wouldn't he have even more liberty, more freedom than them having been given such a high calling? He's an apostle. So you are free. I am free. But if anything, wouldn't I have more liberty? And so the next questions, the next two questions have to do with his apostleship. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? An apostle, and this is what in our church we call a capital A Apostle. An apostle was an authoritative witness to the resurrection of Christ and someone commissioned by the resurrected Christ. Paul, on the road to Damascus, was granted a special privilege to see the resurrected Lord and to be commissioned by him. Even in this book, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The second kind of uh, question of these these two is, the Corinthian church was proof and verification. It was proof and verification of his apostleship as well. Verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The Corinthian church was the fruit of Paul's labor as an apostle. He calls them the seal of his apostleship in the Lord. A seal was given to show that this is the real deal. This is genuine. You go to the meat market today and you will see the highest quality meats, they will have the stamp or seal USDA Prime on it, right? And when you look at that, that's going to be pricier than the other meats. When letters were delivered by courier, you know that it was an authentic letter from the person claiming to have written it because of the seal on the wax that was used to enclose the letter. And he is saying, you are the seal of my apostleship. This church is the seal of Paul's apostleship. And verse 3 says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Examine is from the word investigate in court. Right? This is where we get words like cross-examination. Paul's defense here, then, is twofold. Number one, he saw the Lord. Number two, look at the fruits of that apostleship. And so, as an apostle, he is saying, as an apostle, do I not have as much liberty and freedom as you do? Maybe even more so. In verse four, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Right here, it's exousia, It's used also in the previous chapter that we talked about in chapter 8, verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? And the right to eat and drink would be at the church's expense. He has the right, but he has not exercised it. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Yes, they had the right to marry a believing wife and take them along on their journey. And you would need to support her as well was the implication. This is my freedom. This is my liberty. This is my right. And the church does have a responsibility to support its leaders, pastors, evangelists, And missionaries. This is why we receive an offering. And it is out of joy that we do these things. It's a privilege to give unto God's work. This is why we have free will offerings. It was out of joy and thanksgiving that people would give and give for the tabernacle, the priest's vestments that we went over in Exodus. And all this was required for the po- proper worship that God was doing. And this was considered a privilege to be a part of, to give to this. And the man of God has a right to ask for this. Again, again I am saying I am not personally asking for more money. That's not the point. But the man of God has the right to be supported by the church in which he ministers. And I get why some people are uncomfortable with this. It's a heartbreaking thing that many have abused this and used this to force people into giving instead of seeing this as a free will offering that God has designed it to be. There are hucksters and charlatans who abuse God's word to fool people into thinking that if they give money to him, God is now somehow obligated to bless them. And by deceiving you into thinking that you can be put, like you can put God under your thumb when you give, because he owes you something. But what happens is uh, the trickster really has you under your thumb. But we are able to give because God first gave to us. And God is not a stingy giver. But the abuse of a right doesn't mean the right isn't good. And Paul is saying that he has this right. And I want to note that the believing wife is translated from the word sister wife, right? It's the word sister and wife, Adelphine, right? Sister and wife. Obviously, Paul isn't talking about incest. And the translation here is good, a believing wife. A sister meant that she was a believer. The note there is that it was unthinkable for a Christian to marry someone who wasn't a believer. And so a brother or sister in the Lord was someone that had been added to the number or family of Christ. How are you added to the number? How are you added to the family of Christ? How do you become a brother or sister in Christ? By repenting and by being baptized exactly like what they did in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. There are so many today that do not understand the significance of baptism and church membership. You have undoubtedly heard me speak on this topic often, but if you want a full download on the importance of baptism and even infant baptism, I encourage you to listen to the latest podcast from Dear Church, Because it would have been unthinkable, unthinkable to marry someone who was not baptized and not a member of a church, as we've also learned in chapter 7, verse 39. And so if Paul wanted to marry a sister in Christ and take her with him, they should support her as well, is what he's saying. This is affirmation that a minister can have an unemployed wife. My wife does not want to be unemployed. She likes teaching, so this is why she continues to be a teacher. But this is where the Bible also gets very and extremely practical. There's nothing foggy. There's nothing unclear here. The church should pay the man of God to support his whole family and not expect the wife to work because the Bible clearly says that he has the right to do it. And so who took wives with them? Apparently, the whole lot of them did. The other apostles besides himself. The brothers of Jesus, most likely James and Jude, and even Cephas. Cephas is always distinguished because he is most notably the leader of the group. And he was married, right? We all know that he was married. Because even when he began following Jesus, it says in, in the first chapter of Mark that Jesus stayed in Peter's mother-in-law's house after he heals her, right? And you can't have a mother-in-law if you're not married, just, you know, just in case, uh, But it looks to me that the apostles took their wives with them on their journeys with the church's support. And Paul is saying, I have this right too, but doesn't take advantage of it. Well, obviously, why? Because he has the gift of celibacy, right? In verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So you can't be saying that everyone else has these rights except for Barnabas and myself. Are you Are you saying that? You're not saying that, right? And that's what he's saying. And so the reason why Paul has the right to support is that he is an apostle. That's the first reason he gives. And then we move on to the next reason. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one goes to war at his own expense. If you join the army, the government will pay you. You're not going to go to battle and then afterwards rush to your night shift at the local bodega, right? You're going to get paid if you're a soldier. This is human societal custom. And who plants a vineyard? Who farms all day long and then goes to another job at night? No, his living comes out of the labor. On his farm. You don't plant the farm and get your income from something else. What's the farm there for? So the picture that is being shown here is starting to border on even the ridiculousness. Because it's the same as said about the shepherd who gets to drink milk from his flock. The shepherd, the farmer, the soldier, all were able to get their sustenance from their occupation. The implication here is, why not the preacher? Why not the man of God? And Paul continues on. He's building reason upon reason for this right to be understood and established. If you, if you can see where this is going. He continues to stack on reason after reason after reason. And so this is the third reason in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Do you think this is just on human authority, human societal customs? What does the Bible say? And here Paul quotes what at first may seem like an obscure passage in regard to this point. But it's not. It's not. And we'll see. It's not just by human societal custom you get this, but you also get this in God's law. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And you're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? In ancient Israel, an ox was used in treading out the grain. What that means is you would take something like corn, right? And you would put them on the threshing floor. An ox would trample on the corn, loosening the grain from the husks because there was so much corn. You're not going to sit there going like this, right? And so an ox would trample them and it would loosen or uh, release the grain from the husks. And then whatever was released, this would be tossed up into the breeze so that the chaff would be blown away from the grain. And so while the ox was treading grain... The Bible prohibited the muzzling of the ox. What that means is the ox could eat some of it while he was treading. And so Paul continues on. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Do you think God was really concerned about the oxen when he was writing this? Obviously God, though, is concerned about oxen. He's concerned about all life. But the question is trying to point to the point the main idea of the passage if you look at this verse in context it wasn't about oxen if you look at all of deuteronomy chapter 25 and its surrounding passages it's all about human interactions with one another there's nothing about animals in the context and wham right in the middle of it he is talking about oxen in deuteronomy chapter 25 Paul is going, do you really think that line here is just about oxen? And the answer is no. A person's sustenance comes out from his labor. And that is right that it is so. You work, you can eat with what you work with. And this this also would show us the incompatibility. And this is a side note that I want to make. The incompatibility with the notion of free with biblical principles. You know, I used to love as a kid buy one, get one free toys, right? And I would always ask my parents to get me this. Oh, it's buy one, get one free. You get two for the price of one. And um, I was so excited for buy one, get one free until my father snapped back at me to not like free so much Stop liking free so much, is what he said. Uh, and I, now as I grow, um, those are wise words. I came to Pilgrim Church as a staff member for the Youth and Awana program, which is the children's program. And when the elder overseeing this department uh, at the time gave a seminar, and I was seeing him give a seminar for the first time, he entitled it, There is no such thing as a free lunch. So I knew I'd like this man from that very moment. But this is the incentive given to the ox when he's treading grain. The incentive given to any person laboring, right? And so if an ox shouldn't be muzzled, why would you muzzle the minister? And so he should get paid for what his labors are. I've heard the merits of bivocational ministry, but if I'm frank, I think it's not the norm. And to think that it is the norm, I believe is detrimental to the growth of the church. And this is my thoughts. If you're going to look for reward in your labor, and I think if your reward isn't coming from the preaching that you're doing, what makes you think that this preacher won't get slothful and just give up? So, you know, I do believe that There could be possible scenarios where a vocational minister could exist, but I just don't think it's the norm. I don't see it in the word as well. And I joke around, like as an example, I joke around with our staff and elders about how if they gave me some capital, some money, right, I could give them a 25% ROI because just look at my portfolio. And so, it's not the. It's it's uh, it's not the. Twenty five percent isn't the greatest ROI, but uh, you know, I can show you my numbers. But obviously, I'm not working with a lot of principal. I'm only working with ten dollars. So right now, I have twelve dollars and fifty cents. But if I wanted to push, let's say as an example, I want to push that ROI to thirty percent, thirty five percent. The time consumed would increase dramatically and exponentially. I'd have to do so much more labor, study, research, like get into programs, listen to more things, right? Which I used to do uh, 20 years ago. But when you labor, you should labor with the hope of the fruit that the labor brings. That's what Paul is getting at. The reward, the provision, all the things that I look for should be coming out of the labor that I'm doing, And he says, continues on in verse 11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And here is the correlation that's really hard to miss If the preacher gives you spiritual things, what what are they? The preacher is giving you spiritual things. They are eternal things. Is it too much to ask for material things? Apparently, others had exercised this right with the Corinthians, which is another reason Paul should have received from the Corinthians. People speculate that it could have been Apollos or Peter, and I tend to think that that is correct. Apollos and Peter received gifts, but Paul did not. And as founder of this church, does he not even have more right than the others? But he didn't make use of this right, and he wouldn't want to be an obstacle to the weak Christians. And Paul gives yet another reason on top of that to support the minister. In verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? This is how priests and Old Testament ministers receive their support. In any sacrificial offering, the priest would come away with some portion of it. In Leviticus, I'm just going to give you a few examples to to show you that it's all over the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. So here he is taking this food offering or grain offering and it continues on in verse 2 and he shall take it from he shall take from it a handful so this is what the priest does he takes a handful of the fine flour and oil with all his frankincense and the priest shall burn this at its memorial portion of the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the lord but it doesn't stop there but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons it is a most holy part of the lord's food offerings So what happens? The priest takes the rest of that because this this act is also holy. This is a holy act that the Bible is showing us. Numbers 18, verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion, to your sons as a perpetual due. This shall be yours of the most holy. Holy things reserved from the fire, every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every guilt offering of theirs, which they render to me, shall be most holy to you and to your sons. In a most holy place shall you eat it. Every male may eat it. It is holy to you. This also is yours, the contribution of their gift, all the wave offerings of the people of Israel. I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and all the grain, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. The first right fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Everything devoted in Israel shall be yours. This isn't just some random standalone passage. This is showing, this is how God has ordained it. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it even says, The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. That means they didn't get a land. The priests didn't get a land. They shall eat, it says, the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or sheep, they shall give the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. What that basically is all saying is ministers are sustained by the support that comes out from that ministry, that congregation. I have the liberty to ask for it, is what Paul is saying. That's the truth. And here's the last reason. The last reason in verse 14 is simply that Jesus has ordained it to be so. In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Some of you who grew up in church have seen just this verse stand alone and taken um, this verse out of context, unfortunately. They will say that this verse means that you should live out what you preach. While that's a true statement, it has nothing to do with this verse, right? You should live out what you preach, right? You should practice what you preach, but that's not what this verse is saying. Those that preach the gospel for a living should derive their living from it. The Lord has commanded it to be so. Paul sees poverty then as a privilege, not a requirement. And this is why... When you connect chapter 8 and chapter 9, this is why Martin Luther would also uh, say of this topic, this subject, he would say, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. And he has a semicolon and he goes, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. See, this dichotomy, this, these two things are put together because both are true. And this is what he says in the very next verse, that Paul, he has made use of none of these rights. All these rights, these reasons that I've given you, all these rights belong to him, they belong to the preacher, but he has made use of none of them. You know why? Because this is clearly an example of Christ that Paul wants to show the Corinthians. If you don't make use of your rights, it's because you want to show others the example of Christ in your lives. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I know we're going to continue to explore this topic next week, but this is ultimately what it is. Christ is our example. Paul is showing by giving up his rights, he is using Christ as an example and so that the Corinthian church would be able to look at Paul, the preacher as well, and follow that example. It's not about what am I free to do, what am I free not to do, what are my rights, give me my rights. It's what can I do for you? That was the point. He's giving you all these reasons not so that he could get paid. He still doesn't ask for money from the Corinthians. But he is giving all these reasons because it was right that he got paid. It was obligatory for the Corinthian church to support the preacher. And every sense, and every single reason that he stacked on top of each other, one after another, you had to have paid the preacher, but he didn't exercise that right. Why? For their sake. For their sake and he is teaching them this you know when we clamor and scrounge for us to keep our own rights well i have the right to do this i have the right to do this that's not the picture of the church that the bible shows us what the bible is showing us is what christ ultimately did he had all the right in the world and yet christ would give up that glory and come down and put on man so that he could live among us walk among us and then he would die among us for our sake as our sacrifice this is christ being shown to us in the scripture and this is because of christ we are able to live like him as well this is my friends this is the most fulfilling and joyful path. It's not when we go, this is mine, give that to me. When we see little children fight and say, this is my time, when this is my time, are they happy? They're not happy. How is it any different as we grow up if we start doing that to other people? And yet, the picture that we see here, what Paul is showing, and he's stacking reason after reason after reason, is even though this is his, this is his, it belongs to him. And yet he gives it up for their sake. This is the example of Christ that we have been shown. And this is the example that we are to follow. As Christians, as members of the church, I pray that you will see this and you will follow after Christ in his footsteps. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the very example of Christ that you have shown us in your word. We also thank you that your servants and apostles also followed in this example by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may also see and learn. Help us now to live out the life that we ought to, following your example, O God, while you are here on this earth, serving others before we serve ourselves, thereby glorifying your name, and pleasing our Father in heaven. Let's take this time to pray. There are areas in our lives where we are angry and bitter. This is my right. This is mine. And yet, the Spirit of God would say in His holy word that this is something, if it's for the benefit of a brother or sister, that we can give up. This is our freedom. This is our liberty that we are able to do this. And so when we do not, then bitterness sets in. But when we do, we see that there is joy in the freedom of Christ. Let's take this time to pray, offer up our hearts to the Lord, and ask the Holy Spirit to transform us where we need to be more like Jesus. Let's pray.